Super Game Boy. And it goes like this. Plug Game Boy games into the Super Game Boy. Plug Super Game Boy into the Super NES. Check this out. Game Boy games in color on TV. It's amazing. And games like new Donkey Kong. You can change the borders. And choose your own color. That's funky. How about Super Game Boy and all 350 Game Boy games? Incredible. Welcome, everybody, to episode two of Game Crimes. My name is Jay. I'm joined here by Mike. And Mike, what are we talking about today? We are talking about the wonderful world of bootleg handhelds. Bootleg handhelds. So when you say bootleg handheld, you mean like when you go on a date with a counterfeit girlfriend? <laughs> I, I, I can't relate to that because I've every time I have a marker that I carry around that I'll mark my girlfriend with. And if it comes back yellow, I know it's okay to go on a date with that girl. If it's black, that's how you can identify a counterfeit girlfriend. And they all have metal strips in them anymore. When I look into the face of my counterfeit girlfriend, I can see the Masonic pyramids. And I just, you know, I know I'm having a good time. Counterfeit girlfriend is my, is my emo album, so don't take it. I won't, I promise. You are the one that has the Monopoly on album titles here, buddy, okay? I've only got, <laughs> I've only got nine albums out, and they're under a pseudonym, and you'll never find them. The name is Jazz. <laughs> Jay's responsible for all jazz music. You heard it here first. That's true. Call me um, Charlie Parker, because I'm... Us. Spider-Man reference. Nice. <laughs> Peter Parker's dad, Charlie Parker. <laughs> he shows up in a bird costume. That's one for real jazz head. Sorry. <laughs> Cannonball Adderley jokes next week. A handheld would be like a handheld console. So, like, I'm thinking... The gamest of boys, the Game Boys, the DSs. What are the modern handheld console? Oh, God, the Switch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Switch for sure. Um, your 3DS, your Vitas, Game Gear, Lynx. But when we say bootleg, we don't mean like, here's a, a Vita, but the buttons suck because it was made on a pirate ship. We're talking about this sort of like formal black market process in which you could purchase a ready-made console that doesn't it isn't made to replicate any one Game Boy or Vita and could do a bunch of crazy shit with it. And Mike happens to be a little bit of an expert. Is that, a, or, or would you say an enthusiast? I would say I've got a problem. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I, I mean that like, I, I used to think that I just wanted, I wanted ways to play um, retro games that I could just put in my pocket and go. And I've decided, you know, a lot, a, somewhere down the road that I don't actually like, collecting retro games i like collecting ways to play retro games like i want that spreadsheet to be long is really what i'm looking for okay so you're the like if i say coca-cola exclusive game gear do you get all excited go on <laughs> it's a crimson red game gear that was only released in limited quantities that's ridiculous <laughs> it came with the coca-cola kid but what you're kind of talking about is not not like trying to just get an NES or get a whole handheld version of an NES, but there's actually differentiation between a lot of these things. Like you're not just buying the same console nine times because you have a problem. You're buying this uh, nine different consoles because you have a problem. Well, yeah. And, and like, I'll buy, I'll buy one because it's like, Oh, here's a really like a really cheap, like, um, like game boy micro size device that can, that can play, you know, super Nintendo and even a little bit of PlayStation reasonably well. Mm -hmm. And for like a cheap price. And that's, that's just kind of a really neat novelty. 
Um, but then, you know, over the years, they, you know, it, it kind of kind of running along in parallel with the advent of, of single board computers like Raspberry Pi and Pocket Chip, if you remember that one. And, you know, and mm-hmm. as the, as those get more powerful, new versions of these handhelds come out that, that run things a little bit better. Some of those are Android based. Some of those have a custom uh, Linux distribution that they run on them. And each one has different compatibility. Which means that you're not restricted to just playing one game or one type of game or even games in general. You could be doing other stuff on top of them. And the other thing I think that's cool about these these bootleg handhelds is they tend to be much cheaper than a formal console. I mean, you're probably forking out 400 or so for a Switch if you're buying a game and maybe a controller and one accessory or something. Whereas a lot of these handheld consoles, you can get them for under 100. Pretty easy, right? I mean... Yeah, yeah. They There's... Um, the only times they seem to they seem to get north of a hundred dollars um, is when uh, like uh, they, uh, the the RG three fifty the Amber Nick made that they released a version of it that was like a solid aluminum case and like really mm-hmm. nice build quality and things like that and that tends to jack up the price but when you're just talking about a handheld console that running a specific chip a hundred dollars is the north end right and and you could go up into the luxury stuff I mean if you really want to get into it there's um I like we both been drooling over the analog because it comes with a switch like mounting station you can use on your television yeah but there are so many different options and I think that what we're more going to do instead of give you a best uh a, you know the here's the best stuff and here's what to buy or whatever mike's going to go through his collection and we're going to talk about what you can do with it and compare it to some other resources and also kind of comparing it to existing handheld consoles because in my mind a lot of these are actually a better value than something like a ds um or 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 a vita because as much as i love those systems you're limited in terms of what you can do well (laughs) (laughs) i mean i i kind of this the current state of the 3ds and and a little and to a lesser degree the vita i mean i kind of I, I disagree a little bit on there. There's a complete functioning Half-Life port for the new 3DS that runs that runs full speed and really well. Okay. Well, that's that's fair. I, I mean, my my Vita's <laughs> hacked and my 3DS is hacked. But I guess for the more um, I want to say layman, but that sounds insulting. I guess I want to say normal people without brain problems. <laughs> These are <laughs> you're in the wrong neighborhood. <laughs> well, no, let us be your Sherpas yeah. through the valley, okay? Like we we know our fascinations and obsessions. For a lot of folks, I think a lot of this emulations, ROMs, abandonware stuff is extremely intimidating, and it's hard to know where to start. And yes, you could do crazy shit with your Vita. You could do crazy sh- shit with your Switch, even. But these handheld consoles are going to make it dirt easy for you to do so. Right. Before we go too deep into it, let's walk a little bit back in time and talk about the history. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that little ditty. Now we're going to talk about what is a bootleg game console and how long has it existed? Because what we're presenting to you might sound new, but it's not. It's actually been around forever. And bootlegging media, bootlegging physical products is as old as time. 
I remember seeing bootleg games when I grew up just because they were in people's game collections. Did you ever experience anything like that, Mike? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the best example I can think of is any of those cartridges that are like like 501 or like... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 999,999 <laughs> in one or something like that. And it's just like, no, you just put a bunch of different configurations of Pong on here where the pedals are different <laughs> colors. These are not... <laughs> well, in my neck of the woods, it was absolutely uh, bizarre religious games. Yes. And so you could see a lot of games manufactured illegally by um, churches in the Midwest. And when I say illegally, I mean without a license, but presented as if they had a license. Um, and so for me, uh, bootleg game consoles and games have been around for as long as I've been around. I'd, I'd go see them at the farmer's market. But that's because this kind of stuff has existed since the 70s, which is when game consoles really started. I mean, you can debate over what, it, what the difference between a console and a computer is. But for the most part, the home console market opened up by the mid-70s and has never left since. But there's plenty of evidence that even the earliest consoles like an Atari or a Fairchild were bootlegged. Sure. Selling a bootleg Atari games was a very profitable business for a while. But for right now, we're just going to stick to what y'all need to know in the very, very basics. So we've had these uh, bootleg consoles that existed throughout time. And I think that because I keep saying bootleg, there's the implied argument that you're going to have to like go into a bar and like talk to a guy to get them. But that's not the case at all. I mean, most malls have bootleg consoles, in them, right? I mean, if you're going to one of those questionable import stores or some retro game store that trades in for cash, I think you can expect to see that kind of thing. Sure. Do you see anything like that when you go out and look at game stores or whatever? Because I see at least um, bootleg SNES handhelds and stuff like that all the time. Oh, yeah, I guess. I guess. Yeah, a little bit of that. But it kind of depends on how you're defining how you're defining bootleg. And I know like the legality is is questionable. When I think about something like the Superboy or like the the retro bit, uh, like the retro duo or things like that, where it's like there may be issues with the emulation software that they're using internally and whether or not they have the rights to sell it with that. In terms of just the fact that it is a machine that can play legitimate Super Nintendo cartridges, I mean, I consider that more, I, I put that more in like the clone category. I think you're fair to say that. So, I mean, I guess I do see those around. I don't know that I've ever run into in into like any like bootleg consoles or things personally. Um, but that I also live, you know, I'm living in central Illinois and the, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty vanilla territory here in terms of what you can find. Gotcha. Yeah. The distinction between clones and bootlegs is interesting to me because I think if you're Nintendo, you don't see the distinction whatsoever. And they've pursued that in the past as if, you know, everything was a bootleg. But there is actually some shade of legal protection for this kind of stuff. And again, this show isn't legal advice, but we do talk about the law because of uh, criminality. And it is legal to reverse engineer an existing piece of hardware so long as you don't engage with any proprietary software. So what that means in normal person talk is that if Mike and I grabbed a couple of rocks and maybe some copper piping we stripped out of a house, we could sit there in Mike's garage over seven days just breathing in welding fumes. And if we created something based on our own experience and research that could run NES games, then that's not actually illegal. Mm -hmm. But if Mike opens up an NES and goes, look how they did it, why don't we just do the same thing? than that is. And of course, you could see how that would be really, really complicated when it comes to these consoles, because it's not like you're talking to the to the design person, right? You're not, you're not sitting there uh, when you purchase that thing going, uh, look, did you steal from the Nintendo official specs from this? You can tell me. I won't be mad. That just doesn't happen. 
I think clones would be consoles that run original software, as in I could grab a Super Nintendo cartridge, plop it in the back of like a Superboy, and that's going to be like a Switch-sized device that just runs that Super Nintendo game and, and kind of mimics the feel of a Super Nintendo controller. Right. And you kind of mentioned the um, like reverse engineering. And I think the best real world examples of those that I can think of is like uh, for something like uh, like analog, mm -hmm. the analog clone consoles like the Super NT and the Mega SG. Those were those were done with highly skilled people basically t taking existing hardware, sending signals in, seeing what comes out and trying to ascertain the design of those circuits through research, actually um, dealing with the behavior of the hardware mm -hmm. where where you might start to get into into legal trouble is like an example of the was it the Wii U or with the Wii that's complete uh, system code was leaked recently. Wii U. Wii U. Uh, yeah, we use complete uh, complete internal code and design specs and everything were were leaked. They're just out there. And if you're making um, if you're making uh, oh, what's the Wii U emulator? I'm keeping I think Citra, but that's the 3DS. It's Simu. Simu. Yeah. If you're, if you're, if you're making Simu, um, you can't then go and look at those documents that were leaked and use that to, um, to make a better version of, of Simu. Yes. And we're kind of using hardware emulation and software emulation interchangeably here, but that's because on a technical level, they're kind of the same thing. But what emulation is just in this context is mimicking an existing piece of hardware. So you'd be emulating a Super Nintendo on your Windows and you could be emulating a Super Nintendo based on the circuit boards and a handheld device. It's all the same thing when it comes to the law. But what that also means is that you get a lot of really cool retro-engineered features in a lot of these uh, clones and bootleg consoles. Uh, my favorite is, of course, Safe State, but mm -hmm. stuff that I really, really like, things like Bluetooth connectivity, HDMI out, four-player connectivity on multiplayer games. You have a lot of flexibility on these things. When I was starting to get into these sort of uh, alt consoles, it was back around the early 2000s, and it was really dominated by the Game Park clones, which are this sort of like Game Boy Advance, but with some high-speed chipsets now. Uh, I get the impression that most of these modern things are handhelds. Would that be accurate? I mean, we're, we're focusing on handhelds here, but a lot of the consoles tend to be very expensive and very specialized. Yeah, for sure. There are some, there are some very... Um... Some of the low-end uh, stuff on the market, um, you can find like if you if you're browsing around AliExpress or or Wish, <laughs> you know that they, they have um, they'll be like, oh, this this looks physically like an Xbox One, but with like a DualShock controller or something, and it's running a single core, uh, a single core, uh, you know, uh, computer inside it, and yes, and like that stuff is is one of those like really low ends things where they're like, oh, 500 games in one, you can't really change it or customize it. But when you start to get into ones that you might actually want to buy and have on hand, then yeah, you're you're looking mostly in in the uh, handheld market. And the best example I think people would have is that if you have one of those little like SNES or NES minis, uh, Genesis minis or something mm -hmm. in your house, most consoles that you'd be buying here, handheld, set top or otherwise, are very similar in structure. You've got some sort of, uh, you know, flash media. You've got some sort of emulator board, and it's not really meant to replicate the system in, in full function. But imagine something like a SNES Mini that you could put in your hand and carry around, but, you know, carry maybe 2,000 games of your choice and, <laughs> you know, be scaling up all the way to 2,000, 2,004 when you're emulating. Right. Which is incredible. I mean, if, if you're the sort of person who's buying a Switch because you're looking for the ability to play games on the road... 
you could very easily buy a $75 handheld, fill it up with games you've never played before, and be happy until the end of time. Especially now when people don't have a lot of money, this is not a bad way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Would you have any recommendations before we go into specific consoles or anything itself when it comes to trying to track these kind of things down? Yeah, actually, there's a number of of YouTube channels that I'll that I uh, that I kind of pay attention to. I'm gonna probably pronounce it wrong. Uh, Taki Udon um, is one uh, is one channel. I, he I believe he he lives either it's either in China or Taiwan. I'm not sure exactly where where he lives, but he's very he's in very close proximity to the makers of a lot of these uh, of a lot of the uh, better quality handhelds, and we'll do um, do kind of reviews of those things early on. Um, if depending on what type of devices you're looking for, uh, ETA Prime is another really good channel that you can usually get uh, get kind of reviews of those those consoles, and then um, and then uh, Retro Dodo. Um, I don't really see eye to eye with him in a lot <laughs> a lot of the uh, <laughs> a lot of the reviews that he, that he puts out, but um, is still a pretty good uh, a pretty good look at at um, new consoles as they come out. Do you think that uh, people should have to expect to have these shipped in from overseas? I mean, there you can find U.S. importers for the most part. These are made in East Asia, China, Taiwan, uh, Korea, around there. Is that is that right? You can get them um, here. There's a lot of there's a lot of importers that'll then resell on Amazon. I found that um, the biggest uh, advantage to doing that is is actually getting them um, is getting them earlier. Mm-hmm. But you have to watch out because sometimes those um, the uh, sellers on Amazon are are selling them before they've imported them themselves. Um, so you, you still end up having to wait for it to be shipped from overseas, but you have the markup to meet the uh, to to match those Amazon prices. So I usually I usually end up on AliExpress for most of the ones that I that I order. And you do have to be careful about who you're buying from because there are a lot of very low grade imitations out there. Like even if you think you're buying a high quality handheld, make sure you're looking who you're buying from and whether or not what you're buying is a known name or a known brand because it is not hard to buy a hundred dollar handheld and get home and it's made with like I I don't know like pieces of paper. It happens. Well, and even the known brands, you have to be. There's bootlegs of bootlegs out there, folks. <laughs> it's it's crazy. One of the really popular operating systems um, for some of these handhelds is called uh, Pandora's Box, which is which is very true to its name in terms <laughs> of the details of that operating system. But they uh, there were so many other clone systems of those systems that are sold with the Pandora's Box name that don't have anything to do with the company that they they completely changed the name of that OS to something else. And, you know, of course, it's only going to be a matter of time before the clones then change the name and they got to do it again. I forget what they changed it to. It's like retro something. Retro retro game. Bit gamer. (laughs) This is that jazz I was talking about. But yeah, like it's so it's even if you say go to us, if you watch one of those YouTubers and they're like, hey, here's this really cool, this really cool new handheld that's coming out. You have to make sure that wherever you go to get it, you're actually going to the store. And even then, this, if you are at the right store, because these are, you know, overseas manufacturers, it has a lot of the, the things that I would otherwise look, look at as a red flag. Yeah, for sure. In, in the legitimate store. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's, it just do your research. It takes a lot of patience. As a researcher by trade, I hate to tell people do the research because, you know, it's like there are people out there that specialize in that and can present it. But when it comes to your individual needs and your interest with this kind of stuff, you have so many options that you do kind of have to look around. Yeah. If you do own one of those body sized condoms from Naked Gun and and are willing to go to Reddit, 
there is generally uh, speaking a decent amount of up-to-date news about what kind of uh, materials and consoles are available and which stores are reputable. Oh, and really good Discord groups as well. Look for communities, look for groups, and and it, it is very time-based. So look at what's new and, and what's what people are buzzing about, and that's generally a good place to start. The next bit of the show is an excerpt from one of our Game Crimes live streams, which if you haven't checked out, highly recommend doing. We have it over at twitch.tv backslash Game Crimes. And it's not just us playing games. We're actually going to walk you through some of the things we're talking about. So, for instance, if you'd like to head on over to that Twitch channel, you can follow with Mike as he walks you through all of his various handheld options. So if it sounds a little weird or you reference people asking questions, that's why, because it's a fully interactive stream. Anyway, let's get on to the good stuff. What we'll be talking about is bootleg handheld consoles. We're talking these handheld consoles because, one, Mike has 8 million of them. Mm -hmm. And two, I think that if you're pinching pennies and you still want to play games, this is such a good way to do it. You can buy one of these bootleg systems for 100, 150, somewhere in that range. And basically have infinite games forever. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, no, that's that's fair. I, I, you know, I'd say infinite in that the number is so high it doesn't matter. You'll die before you play all of the Shin Megami Tensei games. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. I and that's not and that's not because there's so many. That's just me taking a stand. <laughs> I'll die before I'll play all those games. <laughs> Just someone, like, throws you up against a wall and forces you to watch a Persona OVA? You have to play the rhythm game, Mike. Shut up! <laughs> the cool thing about these systems is that, like Mike was saying, they're emulation stations. So you can run any number of consoles on these things. And by that, I mean not just home consoles, but handheld consoles as well. So, like, Mike, what's the general range that you would say in terms of... Uh, you know, which era of games can you play on these kind of machines? Uh, well, it's 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 funny you should mention that because I just saw a new one that's been in development. Probably there was there's prototype units set out to reviewers in the in like like maybe six months ago. And mm -hmm. final product just got into um, the hands of some of the YouTubers I watch. And that thing will run some of the lower end PS2 games. What? It's one hundred and fifty dollars, but it'll <laughs> do it. That's where it's weird is like some of these they're kind of fall into two categories. They're the like system on a chip um, handheld systems mm -hmm. that are similar to like a raspberry. Pi. They're not raspberry Pis Generally, they're usually like all winter CPUs or something like that, but they, but they're essentially that type of computer. And then there's also Android devices um, yes. that are basically using phone components repurposed for these kind of handhelds that are like dedicated gaming devices. And since these aren't aff affiliated, these Android ones with any sort of network, you're going to be running, you know, you can run tablet apps, you can run desktop apps, you can run phone apps on them as well. It's not just these right. emulation programs that we're talking about. Right. Various levels of success. But I think there is something to be said for, you know, something, a, a system the size of a wallet that you could watch a movie on and then play PS2 games on. Yeah. Yeah. For, for, for like under 150 bucks or something. 
what I hear a lot of times is like, oh, why don't you just use like a phone for this or whatever? And like mm -hmm. there was a t there was definitely a period of time where I was like really worried about the future of handheld gaming. And it was like right after the Vita died and when people started like releasing like when when people started porting games to phones and having like touchscreen buttons and things and like. Because that a touchscreen just kind of like necessarily excludes a lot of games. There's certain games that like mm -hmm. are just. They're just not going to work as well as they should. And so, like, uh, this is where, like, having, like, a separate dedicated device is, uh, is really nice. Well, the other thing is, too, these things tend to have better battery life. Mm -hmm. um, the screens tend to look a hell of a lot better. I mean, some of the screens that you have on those are ridiculous. Yeah. And I think the other thing on, on top of that, because it's a more open environment, you can do more interesting things with it. Setting up, say, a media server to stream from your desktop on a, on a device like this is super easy. Mm -hmm. And that if you already have that set up, it is that, you know, that means you have access to your music collection, uh, comics, books, etc. And, and, and I guess we should point out, you can do this with your official systems. If you've got a PSP or a DS or something like that, you can absolutely get into that firmware and, and move some things around or buy an external part. Generally speaking, it's a little pricey, though, and kind of risky. You do run the risk of blanking a few a, a console. I've actually done it before I ruined a DS by uh, yeah. trying to run some code on it that it didn't like. So it happens. But I mean, we're going to talk about that as an option as well. So if you have a PSP or a DS or something laying around or a Vita, which is delightful for that kind of thing. So what do you what do you got? Let's let's show off what we can do with these bad boys. What do you got in your, your closet of curiosities here, Mike? OK, well, the first one that I was going to pull out, um, but I think it ended up buried in one of the one of these bins back here. I'm not sure which one. So I'll just uh, kind of talk about it real quick. It's called the Pocket Go, and it was made by BitBoy, and it's a very small screen. Um, it's like like a two inch screen is maybe what's what this thing's got. Uh, Game Boy Advance form factor in that the buttons are on button and D pad are on opposite sides of the screen. I picked that thing up because it was it was like thirty dollars or something, and it and it can play PS One games theoretically. The issue I ran I ran into that thing into with that thing is that it's it was it was very low powered. I mean, it's it was what it was what I was paying for, basically. Um, mm -hmm. But it uh, it has a hard time running uh, running PS1 games, which is which most I mean, PS1 emulation is generally great on almost anything. Um, so that was kind of surprising. But also some uh, some original or some Super Nintendo games ha had a hard time running. It, it was useful for like very baseline emulation. And like when I say Super Nintendo games, I mean like stuff that use like the FX chip. So it's like Yoshi's Island. I had trouble running stuff like that. Those Mega Man X, Star Fox, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So would, would you say that like um, Dreamcast, PS2, N64 is kind of the benchmark for this stuff? I mean, N64 emulation is surprisingly a mess. So it, it, you're going to see some compatible compatibility issues once you get up to that kind of stage of uh, emulation on a lot of these things yeah, right i mean you were saying that dreamcast is not typical you shouldn't expect that no dreamcast is not typical well it's in and it's starting to get there so mm. there are um that uh, that actually kind of leads nicely into this uh this next handheld this is the uh rg350 is by anbernick and this one came out when did i start hooting and hooting at your dms about this one it was probably like <laughs> i think four or five months ago right yeah 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 somewhere around there um I really like this one because it's the form factor is excellent. The screen is really nice on it. But I mean, having dual analogs and these are like not like PSP slider analogs. These are about what you find on a Joy-Con has, uh, you know, L2 and R2 on it. 
it's got uh, two USB-C ports, so you can do accessories and things, and then also has a uh, micro HDMI on it as well, so you can do a TV out on it. Um, oh, so you can just jets. set a TV out and maybe plug like a USB controller into it or something? Uh, yeah, yeah, you can plug in a USB controller into it. This one will just use just uses a uh, micro SD card. Oh, dang. Um, for so, the, so it's easy to load up. For loading everything onto it. The name of the, the OS that this uses is actually kind of a common one. It's like Retro Ding UX, I think is what it's mm -hmm. called. Um, just like a, a Linux distribution. And you'll but, find that a lot of these come pre-installed with stuff like that. Right. Uh, so this one actually does not have... This is where, this is where things get tricky, because this, this uses the RG350 chip. There's another system that came out at the same time that also uses the RG350 chip. That one can play Dreamcast. This one cannot. Um, mm. I mean, it can, but it's really, it's really choppy on this device. And the reason for that is that um, because of the software they chose to use on this one, nobody's developed a custom firmware for this device. Uh, mm. So it doesn't allow overclocking. Okay, okay. Which, so, I mean, would allow you to maybe get into that range. Right. Uh, how's the screen look on that bad boy? Uh, it looks excellent. It looks excellent. This is dead. So I cannot show it to you. <laughs> so it's a really high quality screen. It's, it's so um, high quality. Look at, you know what? Look at the, the level of blacks on that screen. Because <laughs> it's not on. The next one I'm going to jump to is taken apart. And, I'm, and that's for a good reason. This thing will never go back together again. I had high hopes for this baby. Uh, this is the Pow Kitty A19. And it is made by, uh, it, well, it's hard to tell who it's made by. It's made by a, it's made by a few companies, I suspect, because there is a, it's the Wild West over there. Um, <laughs> it was really attractive to me just because the form factor. I like the you know, I like the color. I like the feel of it. It was like a six button layout. There's an analog stick up here and then a D pad here and a really nice screen on it. But the other thing that that got me excited is full screen Dreamcast uh, or full screen speed, speed Dreamcast rather. Um, and I'm a big fan of Street Fighter 3 Third Strike, so being able to play that with a six-button layout on the go, full speed without any latency, that sounded awesome to me. However, this is one where, even though the hardware is really great, um, the buttons felt great, everything was fine, um, the software was super lacking in that, mm. in that they mapped the buttons however they saw fit, and you could not remap them. So it was an issue where it was like, for Street Fighter... This was like you would expect like these to be low low punch, low kick, medium punch, medium kick, high kick, or high punch, medium, or you know what I'm saying. However, it was like it was it started out fine, low punch, uh, low kick, high kick, high punch, and then medium punch, medium kick. So just kind of mm -mm. all scrambled up. You cannot mm -mm. remap the controls here. And so I so I was like, that's the reason that I took this apart was like, if there's no if there's no software and this thing wasn't popular enough uh, for there to be any custom firmware for it either. So basically any any hope of fixing that in software was kind of lost. They're like, I was like, well, maybe the manufacturer will update it. But chances are I didn't get this from the original manufacturer anyway, because uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, I got it off AliExpress. So who knows where who you're ordering from there? I'm like, mm. chances are, even if there is an official firmware update for this thing, I'm not going to be able to get it on my device. So my thought was, well, I'll take this thing apart. And usually like there's usually the way buttons work is there's like you've got your plastic button, you have a silicone pad and then you have contact points and the silicone pad bridges those contact points when you push the button down. 
And so I was mm -hmm. like, well, I can, I could just wire different pads. I could like basically remap the buttons in hardware. Mm. Yeah, I was like, that's yeah. what I was gonna do. I liked this thing enough that I, was, that I was willing to go to those lengths, except that's not how this, these are just the, the buttons are soldered to the board. Oh God. On this thing, yeah. It, it, so it's useless to me. Have yeah. you considered joining a, a an elaborate like bootlegging ring and maybe getting a hold of someone to get a firmware update? Well, here let me tell you what I considered. I harvested the battery because it's a three point seven volt, four thousand milliamp hour battery, and I can use that for something else. And sure. I am going to harvest the screen out of this for use in another <laughs> device because the screen is phenomenal. It was a really nice looking <laughs> screen. Like the pixel density on this is is technically within the um, the bounds of what Apple considers to be Retina. Yeah, it was really nice. But yeah, there is another version of this thing that came out that does support just loading just regular old Android on it. And that I honestly, I'll probably go in for that because the form factor, I loved it. Here's a good question in chat. How about multiplayer on these things? Some of these things even have like multiplayer options, right? So a lot of it depends on, again, what you get um, software wise, because they mm -hmm. mo most of them will have Wi-Fi and or Bluetooth built in. So a lot of them, if they're running like if they're running common software, like if they're running Android and you can get RetroArch on there, um, mm -hmm. depending on your core, you might have NetPlay built in and that should work just fine. That's the whole point mm -hmm. of the LibRetro cores is that they're, you know, they're common, you know, no matter where you're running them, um, they should they should run the same. So you could play multiplayer with like somebody on a PC or like whatever. Um, mm -hmm. This the Ambernic actually you can use one of these USB-C ports to plug in a separate controller. And if you remember, it's got um, it's got HDMI out. So, oh, right. So yeah. it's, it's like a switch. It's like a set top. Plug it in, when you yeah. It one person can play like on the using the actual console controls. Another person on an external controller, similar to like Daisy Chain, like a 3DO controller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I gotcha. Yes, <laughs> where you have to create an elaborate lattice work in order to play Bomberman. Right. Here's a good question: Where are the games coming from? Are you copying the game from a physical copy or downloading it from somewhere else? I would say both. <laughs> that is an excellent um, question. On <laughs> on the Ambernick. You're loading your own ROMs. So you pull out the SD card, you pop it in your system, you load your ROMs. On the Pow Kitty, this SD card was encrypted, and it it runs a um, it runs some software that was formerly called formerly called um, Pandora's Box, and it had a it had its own app store. Like on this device, I boot this thing up. It has an app store. I can't load my own ROMs on it, but I can download for, <laughs> for free anything off of this app store. And it's just it's just ROMs and stuff for days. Um, yeah, it's there's nothing legal about it. Super, it is. <laughs> yes, super illegal. Yeah, because you know you, we could do we could do the whole thing of like oh, only playing legally ba legal backups. But we're all mm -hmm. fucking adults here. We all know what's going on. You can load your own ROMs. You can go through the hassle of putting them into folders, or you can download them directly from here. You do run a cost like you might be looking for a certain game, and it's not there or whatever. We could uh, we could dip into um, we could dip into a couple of handhelds that are outside of the Asian markets if we sure. like. This one only sort of counts. I'm gonna kind of like I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna show this off just because I I feel like it I feel like it fits the bill uh, after a fashion. This is the uh, pocket chip. The, the chip was a was a nine dollar computer. 
um, like a res <laughs> like a low end Raspberry Pi competitor. But actually, it was like pretty neat. It had um, oh god, I'm I can't remember the name of the. There's like a there's like an eight bit game engine for like for like coding for like coding games that's like designed to um it's like what the first version of celeste was done in I so like these sort of like small miniaturized development environments right exactly it's like it's like meant to kind of like hold you back but this had this had that built in but the but this could it was also capable of running emulators so while like the chip the computer that's in it was uh was a nine dollar computer um the rest of it obviously um costs a little more <laughs> this whole thing cost this whole thing cost me forty dollars which i mean You've got a full QWERTY keyboard on basically a Linux a Linux PC. Uh, so I actually carried this around at work doing things that I needed to do, like on servers or whatever. I would just pull this out of my pocket and connect to Wi-Fi and, and do like server Damn. maintenance on it. It was really cool. But it'll play GBA ROMs um, <laughs> is about the extent that it got to. I had actually wanted to, um, I didn't really know anything about like designing, but I kind of wanted to build a, a another case for this that had like controller buttons on either side of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead kind of, of a pop and music controller. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, there's there's things like that that you can um you can play stuff on. This is probably my favorite my favorite handheld that I own. This is the this thing is unnecessary is the only way that I can really describe this thing. It's 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 made uh, a guy in, a guy in France designed this. Um it's called a Retro Stone 2. It's of course like the second the second version of it. It has a, a pretty nice uh, pretty nice screen on it. It's got you know it's it's a Game Boy layout, four buttons. You can kind of see here there are spots where you could drill out the case, and there's contact points to add two more face buttons if you want to have uh, six face buttons in kind of a strange layout. It's <laughs> you can get them there, um, and then yeah. this, this spot down here you can um, you can carve this out, and actually a PSP joystick will fit in. Mm. Yeah. Um, and you can get those for like eight bucks on eBay. You can just a replacement joystick, but then also uh, L2 and R2 on it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is this is where it gets <laughs> it gets silly. Here's uh two U or three USB A ports and a and an Ethernet port. It's got it's got it's got Wi-Fi and Bluetooth built in. Um, mm -hmm. but also inside here is an M.2 slot, like uh for like an SSD. <laughs> It'll take a, it, it takes an SD card. Um, but yeah, it's got a oh yeah, full size HDMI <laughs> out the side, and this actually run this actually runs a um, a custom version of uh, software called Retro Orange Pie. It's really it looks good. It's really smooth. The screen is really nice. Can you boot something up and we see how it goes in motion? Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna pull up uh, pull up some Advance Wars. Ooh. Because of a hardware limitation, you actually roll the volume knob down to turn it up. So I really like I really like the aspect ratio of the screen too because it's you know it, mm -hmm. it fits all that four three stuff without any stretching or anything. Yeah, you don't see any distortion or anything. The motion looks great. I mean, the screen is bright as hell. How much? Uh, how many hours do you get off of that? Uh, it's a four thousand milliamp hour battery. Um, I think if I if I remember correctly, I, I've got it probably clocked it uh, at like six or seven hours, but that depends on what you're playing to. Okay, uh, so you can. That's one you can get in and overclock. Uh, yeah, you can. Um, you can, but it's. But again, like for, in terms of like battery life, it's more going to be like if I'm playing GBA, it's going to last uh, quite a bit longer. But then you could play Dreamcast on this, and it and it won't last nearly as long. Yeah, and I, apparently the Dreamcast looks pretty darn good from what I saw uh, 
from the videos you were showing me. Yeah. Like, so it can handle higher end stuff. Yeah, it's not full speed, um, but it does uh, play is what I would consider playable. Good enough. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you can play. I mean, it'll run PSP mm -hmm. well enough. You know, it's it's pretty good. The range from PSP, like, let's say back to NES or whatever, we're talking tens of thousands of video games. Right. Um, so, like, you really are opening up to a lot of stuff that might not be other available in other markets. And that's not even including, like, DOSBox or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And the benefit, too, of the... Because, um, uh, you know, you mentioned doing, um, like, soft modding an existing console, like a 3DS or, like, a, a Vita or PSP or something. The benefit to a system that's Linux based also is that you have access to a lot of, uh, a lot of emulators, like a lot of the more obscure emulators that may not have been made for a specific console, like a 3ds or something like you're, you're relying on somebody porting like the, like the ZX spectrum to 3ds or whatever. Um, yeah. and maybe that doesn't happen, but you can be reasonably sure there's a Linux core for it. Yeah, that's that's very, very fair. And and of course, Linux opens you up to a billion other non game related things, too, if need be. Right. So, I mean, do you have any more handhelds to you get sitting around there? Um, yeah, yeah. This starts to get out of the um, a little bit out of the emulation handhelds. But since we're okay. talking about about handhelds the, the pl to play all of your all of your games, uh, <laughs> let's let's check out the Retro Duo Portable. Uh, this uh -oh. is a. Um, this is a handheld Super Nintendo. Takes full-size oh. Super Nintendo cartridges. Hell and, yeah. Uh, let's... Look at that port. Oh, God, yeah. It's, uh, it's awful. <laughs> um, yeah, it takes full-size Super Nintendo cartridges. Uh, it's still analog, though. Like, there's an, the screen is analog, so it's fuzzy like a CRT. Or it's, okay. it's, fu it's fuzzy like an LCD trying to be a CRT, I should say. The, uh, the other weird thing that... Uh, it comes with this actually give me just a second here i'll show you okay yeah and those are the those are actually some of the cheaper ones that you can get those sort of mini uh snes or nes or genesis or whatever are uh you know you can find those in your local comic shop or something like that they're out there not as much as um like the retro stone that mike just showed off you're gonna have to order that one online you're not gonna be able to buy that in a retail shop in case you were thinking well that's not practical to have a system that only plays Super Nintendo games? Don't worry. <laughs> you can play Game Boy Advance games on it with an adapter. <laughs> you, just, you just put this bad boy in there, and then you slide your Game Boy Advance game, easy as pie, right down into this little hole, uh, and then you can play GBA games. This is the easiest, most portable way to play Game Boy Advance games I have ever found. <laughs> Uh, well, and, and the form factor, it fits easily in your Gene Co. pocket. <laughs> there are also um, there's also an NES adapter and the NES adapter is like the size of an NES cartridge, but you still got to put an NES cartridge in there. It sticks out. No joke. This far out of the system. <laughs> and, that, and, you know, if you want to play Bubble Bobble on the go, what are you going to do? You're going to pull out the retro dual portable out of your back pocket. Yeah, of your Jingo <laughs> jeans, apparently. Your, your, your giant... This is my foot-long video game console. You might be thinking, too, but Bachman, I want to play my Super Nintendo games with a friend. I want to play two players. How do I do that? Don't worry. They make a dongle for that. 
You just plug <laughs> this bad boy into the side. No problem. <laughs> Easy peasy. Hang a couple of controllers off that. Prop it up against a book or like your airplane tray table. You join in the Mile High Club with Yoshi's Island. <laughs> it's great. I think as getting laid on a plane, it's true. <laughs> yeah, oh it's, it's better than getting laid on a plane. Trust me. Join us, won't you? Part two of the Game Crimes Reading series continues. Today's reading comes from Culture.pl, a Polish culture website. This piece, published in December 27th, 2017, is entitled Fake It Till You Make It, How 1990s Polish Kids Discovered Nintendo Through Piracy. And the author, and forgive me if this is not how it is pronounced, is Patrick Grabowski. This article is really illustrative just showing how much of game history is really focused through the lens of either Japan or the United States. And I think it's clear that a lot of the cultural assumptions that we assume around games and game culture are extremely based on our own experience. I find a lot of otherwise normal, calm, upstanding people get in an air and a throw about piracy so often. And it always confuses me because I wonder if these people know that you're very lucky to live in a country where you have the ability to care and, and, and pay authors for their work. That's a very, um, let's just say, Amerocentric belief. And in fact, a lot of relationships with copyrights around the world will reveal that people are far more flexible when it comes to their understanding of this than you may pick up from browsing on Twitter or some game website. You might see some names in here that look unfamiliar. Uh, Bob Mark. Pegasus, Fun Station. For the purposes of this reading, they're all just bootleg NESs, Nintendo Entertainment System, the game console from the 80s. There were that many names for that many different varieties of bootlegs. So without further delay, here's a passage from Fake It Till You Make It, How 1990s Polish Kids Discovered Nintendo Through Piracy by Patrick Grabowski. Nintendo's first home video game system did not arrive in Poland until 1991. Kind of. Get yourself some Mario action, you could not go to the official Nintendo shop. There were none. Most probably, you could not even go to an electronic shop. Instead, you went to a local bazaar, where you could find video game consoles being sold next to potatoes, homemade pickles, and knockoff trainers smelling like cheap rubber. You'd somehow had the chance to hold an NES in your hands before. You would immediately notice there was something fishy about the one being sold at the bazaar. It was lighter. Colors were off. Packaging looked cheap. And wait a minute. What in Donkey Kong's name is a fun station? That's not Nintendo at all. As unbelievable as it is today, until 1994, there were virtually no intellectual property laws in Poland, which in turn allowed the bootleg market to thrive and prosper. At bazaars, flea markets, and even in regular stores, one could buy legal bootleg clothes, music, films, video games, and video game consoles. Even though the Pegasus was compatible with Famicom cartridges, and also some modified NES cartridges, everyone was playing the bootleg cartridges. 
They were often made from low-quality plastic, poorly manufactured, mislabeled, and sometimes simply did not work. Buying Pegasus games at a bazaar was a lottery in itself. Fortunately, the bootlegs were also inexpensive, and a lot of kids in the 1990s owned a Famiclone, which made it easy to swap with friends. The market was flooded with even cheaper Famiclones, and Bob Mark could not do anything about them because their product was a bootleg itself, even if the quality was higher than average. Even though the Famiclones had such exciting names as the Fun Station, Poly Station, and Ending Man Terminator, everyone in Poland just called them Pegasus anyway. That's a little bit of information. It's a fun bit of information, but you should know that queer people in Poland right now are under attack. They're being threatened. While I'm here reading and writing about Poland's culture, I would encourage you to please look in to some of the organizations fighting for queer rights in Poland. LGBT rights in Poland are being stripped away systematically by a fascist government and the people who enable it. So do yourself a favor and check out some organizations such as the ILGA and see what you can do to fight for queer rights in Poland. Thanks. Now we're on to the fun part of the show. What kind of game are you going to play on your Game Boy Station 5? And for our episode on bootleg consoles, we've got a couple of hot ones right off the press, like a newspaper man would say. But let's save you a little bit of time before we go into these things. Mike, if the listeners want to download one handheld game to play on their handhelds that they just got overseas from China after seven weeks of waiting, what should they put on that bad boy? I've been really getting deep into the GBA Castlevanias. So before this turns into a 45 minute screaming match, (laughs) do you have a preference between them? Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I think, I think I'm probably most into the, uh, into Aria of Sorrow. I really like the, the every single enemy in that game has a soul that it can drop that gives you a new uh, ability or power. Um, there's also a sequel, a direct sequel to that game on the DS, which is also very good. Uh, Dawn of Sorrow. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, those are those are very good. Big fan of Circle of the Moon too, though. Uh, that's what I was waiting for because I also love the Game Boy Castlevanias. Uh, well, the Game Boy Advance Castlevanias. Stay away from the Game Boy Castlevania. But I love all three of them quite a bit. Harmony of Dissonance, which is the middle one we haven't talked about actually pretty decent it's very weird lots of neon colors and weird looking enemies and good level design circle of the moon is completely unique it doesn't play like any of these other 2d castlevanias i I gotta say mike i think that's a good call and also um it's hard to emphasize how good looking the sprites are in those games that if you were expecting some kind of like retro looking kind of uh video game when we talk about this these games look like a modern indie game they have super elaborate pixel artwork you know really smart menu inventory systems there's like random elements in each one of the games i think i think that's a good call mm-hmm. my recommendation capcom versus snk card fighters clash 2 
lots of words, but don't think about it too hard. This game came out for the Neo Geo Pocket Color, and if you're into card games like I am, I, for instance, have been playing Magic the Gathering since 1996, uh, which should tell you a lot about me. But <laughs> what that means is that I can find a game like this, like SNK Car Fighters Clash, and get the same thing that I get out of a game like that in this beautiful strategic pixel art based game where all the matches take five minutes to play and you could emulate it on a rock because it's from a four bit system. Yeah. It, it's, it's gorgeous. And if you're looking for a great way to pass the time, you know, some sunny afternoon, I, I can't think of a better way. 40 plus hours in the main game. Can't beat that. Also with like 500 original cards, each with original sprite artwork and like super rare references to street fighter. I mean, if you're a nerd, it's, it's got what you want. Now, was this based was this based on any any actual um, PCG like maybe in Japan or is it just a digital thing? It is a complete unique digital design, and because they designed from the ground up, there's a lot of interesting mechanics in it. My favorite element of the game is that you only have three slots in the game for placing things on the board, but those things can stay in game quite a bit. And so there's a lot of strategic decisions, even though you don't play a lot of cards or make a lot of decisions. Like you can maybe do one thing a turn, but because of that, the games go so fast and there's so much back and forth. Yeah. And there's a really neat system to it where um, let's say you play a Ryu card, right? And he hangs out on the board and he does Ryu stuff. Instead of putting Ken down next to him, you could put Ken on top of him. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And that's spicing up and their powers would combine, but that means that you didn't have to use the slot for it and only certain characters are allowed to top each other. That means that you have to figure out who likes being topped by who. Hell yeah. And it's not always a one-to-one. Some characters to like to top, but don't like to be topped. So if you ever wonder what it would be like to top Blanca, that's the game for you. Oh my God. <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> what is the first game we played on stream? It's a little beauty called Donkey Kong 94. This game was released for the Game Boy, the original Game Boy, and I consider it to be like a physics platformer. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, I, th I think that's fair. Um, I think it, it's it was nice to play play 94 with the updated roster over 93 also. <laughs> Donkey Kong 99, the dream match. This is when I made Mike play. And I picked this because it is a very unique version of Donkey Kong. I would say that, uh, in fact, I don't think there's another version of Donkey Kong like this other mm -hmm. than, uh, I don't know, the Mario minis games is what they're called. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those don't, those, I, I tried playing, um, playing one of those after playing, uh, Donkey Kong 94 and I think it didn't grab me in the same way. And part, part of it is because I didn't know anything going into Donkey Kong 94, um, when we started playing it. And it just like completely like changed my, it, it completely subverted my expectations. I think you remember, like I was playing it and I was just like, cool. It starts off just like Donkey Kong. It's just Donkey Kong. And if you don't know anything about it, mm -hmm. as soon as you accidentally like move in a direction and try and jump in the opposite direction and holy shit, I just did a backflip. That's <laughs> <laughs> literally what happened to me. And I was like, oh my God, wait a minute. This is, this is different. Yeah. So Mario can do what can he do? He can do backflips, handstands. Um, he can flip items in the air and catch them. Uh huh. You got to play it. You got to check it out because it's a Mario game without Mario's physics. 
doesn't run like a Mario game. Mario doesn't walk like Mario should, but it still feels right. Mm-hmm. That's a very weird thing to describe, especially when Mike's saying you're expecting Donkey Kong and getting what I would describe as like a big floaty version of Mario. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but the real genius in this game to me comes in the level design, which is super, super, super compressed. I mean, every level is like 45 seconds long once you figure out how to do it. Right. Here's the question for you, Mike. Let's say someone's not into Donkey Kong or they're not into Mario games. Does this uh, game have let's say this is someone's first video game, for instance. Do you think this would be a decent, decent bit? Because I feel like this is, to me, classic, simple, elegant. Anyone could pick this up and enjoy it. I guess there's 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 two questions there. If you're not if you're not into Donkey Kong or Mario, I think this diverges from both of those enough that um, that it's still worth taking a look. Mm hmm. Uh, the levels are are slower paced. They're not really like kind of the run the run and jump style, you know, style of Mario. And beyond those first mm-hmm. few levels, you're not doing you're you're not just kind of running through the same like get up to the top of the screen like you are in Donkey Kong. Um, they add puzzle elements. There's not a lot of like instant death or open pits or you know restarting and having to play four or five minutes of a level over because you screwed something up. This game's far more generous than that. Right, for sure. So yeah, I, I I mean I think it's I think it's definitely worth taking a look, especially you know with the size of those levels and um, the the way that they introduce new mechanics. Usually they start off a they start off a level with a new mechanic with like a little animation of mm-hmm. of of that mechanic in action. So that you never really yes. get into a level and you're like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do? It's it's already been kind of like introduced to you um, going into it. And each level, it seems to be like a subsequent development of the previous level's ideas. Like, so when you walk into a stage and you're doing, say, I don't know, the key to open a door for the first time, it's relatively easy to find the key. But the second time, it's a little harder. And the third time, you might have to jump or throw it. They do enough iteration on the same idea that you never get too complicated. And it's it's really rare for a puzzle game to give you that much variety and for you to not feel like you're just doing the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. This game does that pretty well. Especially for a Game Boy game, I think people's expectations for handheld games is that they aren't sort of an enjoyable experience uh, on their own. They're some sort of lesser version of a, of a bigger idea. And I'm here to say I actually prefer most handheld games to, to big console games because I like how fast they are and I like the, the minimal mechanics. And something like this has got everything I'm looking for. I've always kind of thought of Mario 64 as as like that as the you know when mario oh, yeah. started becoming an acrobat and it's not it's mm-hmm. not a lot of that was was pulled directly from this game i think the reason why like when i ex- when i did a backflip and i instantly knew how to do it was because it's it's done the exact same way that it is in mario 64 and this predates that by two years i believe yes by two years and i would say it feels pretty similar like i feel like a lot of the physics in that game are pretty similar to donkey kong 94 mm-hmm. especially with the kind of gravity that mario has when he jumps yeah, there's a big float at the beginning and then you kind of fall like a rock. The other thing I think is interesting about this game is who made it. So, of course, Donkey Kong is a Nintendo property, but Nintendo isn't just some big monolithic beast, although it is. Nintendo is also a collection of uh, design and development teams that all kind of work independently. And this was made by their EAD team, which is their primary development team. There's a handful of those. I think aren't they all just called like EAD one and two and all that. Kind yeah. Of thing? yeah, yeah, I believe so. So they all have their own credits. But the thing that's interesting about Nintendo games is when you start looking into the credits, you realize that a lot of them aren't actually made by Nintendo. They're made by contractors. And this game was developed with the help of a contractor named Pax Softnica. And Pax Softnica is a relatively obscure design company, but 
the list of Nintendo games that Pax Softica has worked on is ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's Earthbound, it is Pokemon Snap, and it is Mole Mania, another Game Boy game. Three of my favorite Nintendo games. I'm not familiar with Mole Mania. Mole Mania is, uh, think of it as, um, it's Miyamoto doing Dig Dug. Okay. Um, but like combine Dig Dug with Lolo. Um, the idea is that you do like push puzzles on top and then you go underground and dig holes and then you pop back up to do more push puzzles and you can make ground collapse and stuff like that. Oh, gotcha. Cool. It's great. It's, it's, I think it's, I think it's Miyamoto's best game, but <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's just me. I guess what I would say is this game is great because it, it subverts your expectations for everything it's going to be. It, it's a Donkey Kong game, but it isn't. It's a Nintendo game, but it isn't. It's a Mario game, but not really. Um, and it's still fun. I, I think anyone can enjoy this. And then I would I like to ask, should our listeners play this even for 15, 20 minutes? Hell, yes, you should. Mm-hmm. It's so fun. It's a great game. I think looking back, like looking back at just even like the cover art for this game, I think it like. It did it. It did itself like a huge disservice because you look at the cover art and you think you think that it's just going to be a Donkey Kong game. And that's why I never touched it. It's like I've played Donkey Kong. Why would I want to play a lesser version of that on a on a monochrome system? Um, and it's not it's not that it, it it even presents itself up right up. Like I said, right up past the first few stages. You're like you're like, OK, this is just fucking Donkey Kong. And then, oh, wait, no, it's absolutely not that it's it's much more. Mm hmm. So would you say that like the average person owes themselves to spend 20 minutes with this game? For sure. For sure, at least. Highly recommended. Next game we're talking about down on the road, Mike. I made you play Avenging Spirit. Yeah, this this is a this is this is a treat. This is not what I expected this game to be. <laughs> so this was sort of a uh, we were we were kind of going on the fly when one of our previous choices didn't work properly, which uh, was a a lovely roguelike for the system called Cave Noir that all of you need to look into. But Avenging Spirit's a little different. This one's also a platformer. It's uh. So very Mario alike, and it was all it was released in '92, so near the the midlife of that Game Boy system. Uh, Mike, what's the big hook for this? Uh, the big hook is the is that you're you're not playing you're not really playing as the as the character. You're playing as the spirit that possesses the character, and you have the ability to then float into any of the other enemies and possess them with all their abilities as well. And it's just a lot of like, it gives you a lot of options. Mm-hmm. Um, you possess something and all of a sudden your, your abilities and the way you control is completely different. You know, you, you'll go through a section and you'll be like, oh, this is too, this is too hard. I got destroyed. Well, I'm going to possess a different enemy and I'm going to come back through it with completely new set of powers. And maybe it'll be a little easier or maybe it won't be. It usually won't be because <laughs> it's a difficult. It's not an easy game. <laughs> I've always loved the idea of like giving, giving the player like multiple new ways to play a game. Mm-hmm. Um, this has got that a very like Mario Odyssey feel. Yeah, you take you take control of something else, and it's just like everything changes, and that's really cool. 
I think thinking of this as a 2D version of Mario Odyssey is actually a great place to start because it is it is very similar to if Mario could possess a Koopa and then possess a Piranha Plant and then possess a Lakitu. Like all of the all of the enemies in the game are interactable. And the thing that I really love about this game, which I think um, handheld games tend not to get a lot of credit for, the presentation's awesome. Yeah, the sprites are big and expressive. The end, there are so many different enemies, and you can tell them apart very, very easily. Uh, like Mike said, there's a big distinction as to who you possess and what you gain when doing it. So you you gain a lot of information about the game while playing it. You've got kind of a Rolodex of what each character does and when you might want them. And it's just a very interesting, like, what's the best way to put it? it it's a very, it's like a nice, satisfying, hearty meal, like a, mm-hmm. like a grilled cheese or something. Uh, it, it doesn't have a, a ton of ambition, but it never, ever misses when it's trying to hit something or pull something off. Yeah, the other thing I really liked about it is the is how open ended the levels are. Um, they give you you know the there's there's whole sections that you can just skip, but maybe if you go there, you find something else that you'd rather possess that's going to make a different section um, of the level play differently for you. I, I deliberately say play differently in, instead of saying make it easier like I did earlier because it <laughs> it won't do that. It's this game kicked my ass. I was about to say, should we talk about the boss fights? Because I feel like that like all this fun and whimsy gets checked out the door once a boss shows up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've repressed most of that, but <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very difficult. This game was a, a port of an arcade game by Jalico. Both the arcade version and this Game Boy version was made by a development house known as CP Brain or Crash Power Brain. They didn't really make a lot of other games. And so one of the other reasons why I picked this is because it's so interesting to me to find a game that is so strictly tied to one company it's like an author that never wrote a second book Mm -hmm. it's that sort of like here's what these people were about at this point in time and it feels like this perfectly crystallized moment in history what that really meant to me knowing that this game was from 92 and doing all these interesting things and the presentation is so strong is that aesthetics have always been part of games but there was always kind of an acceptance of hardware standards and what you could do within those standards. And I feel like that that's not here anymore. Does that make sense? Standards are relative. Games are just, they exist and they can be deployed to various platforms as opposed to being given a set of tools and making something with them. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's that's just basic criticism of, of game design in general, not anything. I'm not calling anyone out in particular except for Bethesda. Uh, but... <laughs> Tim Sweeney, your ass is marked. <laughs> Booyah. <laughs> the boys are coming. <laughs> But what I mean by that is, like, this is a Game Boy game, not Sleeve. Its ambitions are strictly within the limits of Game Boy game. And if you go in knowing that, it is so pleasant. It's just it's like a nice piece of candy or a dumb action movie or something. Mm-hmm. You play it for an hour or two, you put it out of your head, and you're good with it. And do you think other people should give this a shot? I mean, to me, it's like eating a potato chip. Sure, why not? I can't imagine finishing it. Oh, God, no. But, yeah, I, you know, give it give it a shot to see what it was all about, because I, I think it's a really interesting concept. And the music whips. The great soundtrack. Yeah. It was very good music. <sighs> All right! And that's the end of episode two of Game Crimes. Thanks for hanging out with us. Please tweet us, cry, send pictures of yourself crying, crying about video games. Um, we might respond. We might even like them. <laughs> Look, Mike ordered a big package of bootleg Switch cartridges, and that shit is delicious. So we have to get out of here. Mike, do you need to uh, plug anything on the way out? No, no. no? <laughs> I don't. I try to think. I try to think if, I, if there's anything in particular. So I don't think so. I don't know when either. Hopefully soon. 
yeah, yeah. Just, pl- just want to plug, just, just current events. Just check out the news. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, and subscribe. Let us know what you think in the comments. <laughs> I own news.com. <laughs> this is a news.com product. Of course, you can always find me doing superhero storytelling over on the SHU podcasts, Weird Adventures in Space. Of course, on Twitter at underscore jhigh5. And you can find this show at Game Crimes Pod. Give us a like, throw a subscribe around. I don't know. I'm sick and tired of self-promoting. You know what to do. You listen to podcasts. Just, just fucking Google it. <laughs> just Google it. <laughs> just Google it. It's there for you. It's not for me. It's for you. We already know this shit. You know, I know where my Twitter account is. Duck, 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 go to Bing and Google it. <laughs> and that has got to be the end of the episode. We are losing our minds and we need to preserve these precious and valuable brain cells. Also, these switched cartridges, they taste like the, the mystery airhead. Delicious. Stay put. Jump on the stream sometime if you could and wait for next episode. Episode three, the life and afterlife of the Sega Dreamcast. Thank you.